the rest of us, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, and we're going to continue in the book of Exodus. And this is chapter number 8. We're going to be starting verses 1 through 15 today. This uh, series is called The Great Escape, okay? Uh, last week in our, in our message, Bloody Waters, we saw the Lord use Moses and Aaron to bring judgment upon Egypt. He did this by revealing the fact that the river God that was worshipped by the Egyptians was powerless against the one true God. He displayed this fact by turning their ultimate symbol of life, the Nile River, into a picture of death as its cool, clean waters turned to blood. This week we will witness another God, another false God revealed through this same river, which at this point God has mercifully restored. While the waters may be clean, the banks of the Nile are preparing to reveal yet another terror upon the people of Egypt as the Lord brings devastation and reveals His authority once again in our message titled, Frogs or Freedom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for today. And Lord, I know that uh, I have uh, labored over this message and prayed over this message and God uh, done my very best to get uh, me out of it. And uh, Lord, this just to be simply exactly what you have for us. Thank you for speaking to me. And I would ask, Lord, now that just begging you to speak through me, that the words that I share would be the ones that you would give me, not the ones that I would choose. Help this be a message from the Spirit of God, not from humanity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus 8, verse number 1, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. I want you to notice that little word, that, okay? There's a qualifying word there, that. And so in this verse, basically it's saying that while they are captive to Egypt, they cannot serve me. Does everybody see that? Remember that Egypt is a picture of the world and of sin. The taskmaster of Egypt is Pharaoh, who is a picture of Satan. So the only way we can serve God is to be free from the world, okay? Because guess what? It is impossible to serve both. It is impossible to serve both. So their freedom would be for them to stop serving Egypt so that they could serve God. Um, Luke 16, 13 says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That verse means it is impossible for you to serve God, truly serve God, and serve the world at the same time. It is an impossibility, an impossibility. We are either serving him in freedom or we are serving sin in captivity. James 4, 4 says this, ye adulterers and adulteresses. When it uses that term, what it's talking about, those that are unfaithful. Those that are unfaithful, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Enmity means an exact opposition. It says, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. No one in here would like to claim that you're an enemy of God, right? But guess what? When you serve the world, according to the Bible, you are the enemy of God. Amazing. We don't want to be that person, so be careful who we're serving. Let's evaluate every day where our heart is, what we're serving. Romans 8, 8, uh, 6, 18 says this, this, being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Right? As we see in our story today, and as we're also going to see in the gospel message, there's a constant work of God to try to bring freedom. We see it from the very beginning of the Bible all the way through. That God's trying to build and restore humanity. And it says there that we might serve righteousness. Serve righteousness means to serve godliness, right? When you know in the Ephesians 6, and it talks about the fact of the breastplate of righteousness, right? That's our lives. Your breastplate of righteousness is a life you're living. That means when you evaluate yourself, do you see a righteousness or do you see sin? Are there things in your life that are obscuring your view of God? Because bottom line is, we've allowed some stuff into our lives that we know are not pleasing to Him. 
It happens to all of us, right? No one's immune. Ain't nobody in here goes, look, I'm just righteous and I had no problem with it. Duh, right. <laughs> You're lying right there. There's your problem, okay? Uh, what happens is all of us struggle with the same issue. It's a matter of us learning to give it to the Lord. Through serving God, we will find freedom and true purpose. John 10, 10 says this, that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly, right? An abundant life that's available. People try to find an abundant life in the world and it never, ever works out that way. An abundant life actually only comes from serving God because you fulfill what you were created to do. As Christians, we're given this amazing gift to live our gratitude and love toward God through service to others. In John 4.11, it says, Beloved, it says, If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. This world is not about loving one another. Facebook is not about loving one another. Now, the, 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 the posts might be, but don't drop into the comment section. <laughs> there ain't a whole lot of love in the comment section. <laughs> it's like, wham, 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 wham. And then you're like, I'm just going to check on this thread. And then you're like, oh, my word. Wow. People are just, man. It's not about loving one another. It's about one-upping one another. Everybody wants to be right, be right, be right, be right. You know, let God be true in every man a liar, man. Let's put our faith in the Lord. Let's live for him. Let's honor him in our lives, every aspect. Because even if you're online and you're typing something and you go, look, I'm anonymous. Basically, nobody knows who I am. Guess what? God still sees what you're saying. Even if you go, I didn't really mean it. Well, guess what? It's still out there. Once you put that button, man, even if you go back and delete it, it's somewhere. So remember, you represent the king, man. We represent the king. Doing the work of God is the most rewarding thing we can possibly do. And it is impossible to do it when we are still serving sin. We must be free. Verse number two, it says, And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. Now, not armies, not chariots, not giants, frogs. <laughs> How many of you guys are like, frog? Right? Frog, well, okay, one or two, right? <laughs> frogs. Frogs, uh, the, the weapon that he's using in this instance is something kind of unusual that we would not personally choose as a weapon, right? I have an image I want to show you. This kind of gives you an idea. This is kind of what the average Nile frog kind of looks like, okay? So why would God choose frogs, right? Now, are there anyone here who likes frogs? Some people collect frogs. Who's a frog liker? All right, so we got one, two. All right, how many of us don't like three, four? How many don't like frogs, Right? <laughs> They're kind of gross, aren't they? They're a little bit, ooh, right? But how threatening is a frog? Consider it doesn't have any claws. It doesn't have any teeth. It doesn't have any horns or spikes or armor. I mean, you can just take a frog and just kill it like that, just squish it in your hand, right? <laughs> Not that you would do that, hopefully. <laughs> but the only real defense they have, if you remember when you're, if you're little kids, who remember who caught frogs when you were little? Okay, and when you catch them, what do they do in your hand? They pee in your hand. That's their only defense. So realistically, not the most threatening animal you can imagine. So we sit there and we go, why in the world, why does God choose frogs, right? It's because they're disgusting and creepy? Maybe. I don't know. But there's, an, there's some other reasons. Check this out. Um, in this scripture, in 1 Corinthians 1.27, I think it's pretty telling here. It says, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and hath chosen, check what it says, the weak things of the world to confound those things which are mighty. Egyptian empire is the mightiest empire on the planet at this time. Would it be like God to humble the mightiest empire in the world with something as silly as frogs? 
It's about humility. God's trying to wake them up. As we continue in our message, we're going to notice that humility is a very important element of what we're going to talk about. Now, are there some other reasons as well? Yes. Okay. Each year when the Nile River would flood, fertilizing the ground, what would happen is when it flooded each year, frogs would come out with the water and they would procreate and reproduce and there would be massive amounts of frogs. And what happened with the culture of the Egyptians is whenever they saw a natural phenomenon, traditionally what they would do is they would attribute it to a god. So what they did was they said, well, gosh, look at all the frogs. That whenever the, when the flood comes, there's so many frogs. They must be a goddess of fertility. Okay? So there's a goddess of fertility. Her name is Hecate. Hecate had the body of a woman and had the head of a frog. Okay? And I think I've got an image of her we're going to show you. One of that's actually a relief. Yeah, so here she is right here. Okay? So Hecate was believed to be the goddess of fertility and at the same time also a representation of life. Okay? Representation of life. So frogs were sacred in Egypt, okay? Women would actually wear amulets or carry amulets that were frogs or, or pictures of her or little images of her. They would carry them around when they were pregnant to ensure a safe pregnancy. They had great reverence for her. There's someone right there, in fact, right? So we have these, these, this reverence for them. So in, in, in actuality, they're actually worshiping frogs. They hold them at high, high reverence. So when we understand the mindset of an Egyptian, right, who's got frogs in their home and frogs in their pockets, and frogs are really important to them, we can understand maybe why God would choose frogs. Something that they reverenced is going to become something they're not going to reverence very much. Verse number three, and God says, And the river shall bring forth abundantly, uh, which shall go up and come into thine house and into thine bedchambers and unto thy bed and unto thy house of thy servants and upon thy people and, upon, and into thine ovens and into thy kneading troughs. Basically, he says, look, they're going to be everywhere. I mean, you're going to open the cupboard, frogs. You're going to open up your bed, your, your bread container, frogs. You're going to go in your bed, pull back the blankets, frogs. You're going to go to the bathroom, frogs. Where you're going to open your, your Reese's Pieces, and you're, frogs, right? I mean, whatever it is, they're going to be all over the place, right? So it's going to be like, frogs, right? Now, take note that the second plague is from the river, right? Again, what we're seeing here is God's using the same source, He's attacking two gods simultaneously in this instance. We have Hopi, who is the, the river god, and we have Hecate, who is this god of the, of the frogs. So now we've got both of them being overpowered by God. Now, it's also, it's interesting, it was illegal, or it was actually forbidden to kill frogs in Egypt. So they were unable to lay a hand upon them. They were actually, like I said, a representation of God. So the, the, the river is no longer, he can't control what's coming out of him. He has no control over the banks, and we have the, now they have frogs that are literally going to be crawling all over the place. And the frogs shall come up, up, up on both, shall come up both on thee and upon thy people and upon thy servants. Okay, so take a look at this image. Now, if you're not a fan of frogs, right? Renee is not a big fan of frogs. Renee, imagine being laid in a box and just covered with frogs. Right? They're making the noises, right? And they can stick to you, right? They can like stick to you and climb up on you. So what it says is they're not only going to be in your stuff, but they're going to be on you. You're going to be like, right? Some people would be freaking out, right? Even if you reverence them, getting a frog climbing on you, you're laying in your lane, all of a sudden you're like, frog. These things are going to be crawling all over the place, right? 
Not only will the frogs be everywhere, they'll be underfoot, they'll be all over the people. Imagine frogs crawling all over you. Uh, they're literally going to be tormenting us. So the river, which they worship, has not only brought the blood, but now it's going to actually torment them with the frogs. Now, Moses and Aaron have done as they've been told. We know because basically we can tell that God's told them they're going to go out and they're going to talk to, to Pharaoh. They're going to present their case to him. And we know now that, he's, that he obviously does not listen because in verse number five it says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up from the land of Egypt. Now, in Exodus 7-1, we saw that Moses was going to play the role of God, right? He says, You are going to be a God unto Pharaoh, and Aaron is going to be your prophet. So we see here in this example, they're representing, God is, is showing uh, Moses uh, this example so that he can understand his relationship in the future, that he's going to be a prophet of God, and they're going to communicate directly. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So now, the river, the ponds, the creeks, everything starts just releasing frogs, and they're just waves of them coming up out of the water. Imagine the sight of that, right? You're just like, what's that noise? Do you, or people are probably down there by the river going down to get some water, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, hey now, whoa, hey, 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 this is, and they're just coming. I mean, waves and waves and waves, like a wall of frogs crawling out of the water. People would be backing up, backing up. They're going, man, these are, these are supposed to be good. We're supposed to reverence. This is supposed to be a representative. What's heck it doing? What's happening? Can you imagine the sound of it? They're crawling up. Sorry, Renee's having a little fit back there, but try not to think about it. But we're going to be talking about them a lot. I apologize. Um, what they'd always considered a blessing is now creeping up on them as a curse. What they used to reference, they're going to now loathe. Interesting, huh? Are there things in our life that we used to reverence that God's changed our perspective on them and we no longer reverence them? We can actually loathe them, right? There are things in us as Christians, as children, as child of God, there should be things that used to be in my old life that were fine that are no longer fine anymore. My language, right? My attitude, the things I look at, the things I listen to. I'm telling you, prior to getting saved, dude, dropping the GD out of my, out of my mouth, no problem. I'd say it, no problem. It never even crossed my mind that it was even a curse word. But today... Not only not saying it, but hearing it is like a dagger to your heart. You're like, man, that's my Lord, man. It changes you. And if you can continue in your life as you did before and you say, well, I got saved, but I don't know any difference. You need to check your heart and check your salvation. You know, because bottom line is God changes us. The Bible says you become a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. God alters us. Does that mean I can't fall into sin? No. I can absolutely fall into sin. Does that mean I still live in my flesh? Absolutely. Is it still I can still, still so I can get mad and say a curse word? Yeah. But you know what? If I say it and it doesn't bother me at all, there's an issue there. Either I'm so far distant from God or I'm not really saved. Because God says, you know what? That, 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 that the water, that a spring shouldn't bring forth sweet water and bitter waters, it says in the book of James. I need to be true with who I am. The closer I walk with God, the more he comes out of me. The farther I walk from God, the more I embrace the world. Like we talked about, you can't do both. The more the world comes out of me. What, was, uh, what wasn't the plan for, uh, for Moses, for God, simply to change Pharaoh's heart, right? Wasn't that the purpose of the plagues? 
It's not really just the purpose of the plagues. He's doing much, much more. The Lord is not only working to free the Israelites, but guess what? He's working on the Egyptians at the same time. As these people now, what's happening is he's making them rethink their understanding or their beliefs, right? He said, look at this in Exodus 7, 5. It says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch forth thine hand, mine hand upon Egypt, and bring out the, land, the, the, the children of the Israel from among them. God is saying, look, you know what? Not only am I going to reach the Israelites, not only am I trying to show them who I am, but at the same time, I'm showing the Egyptians who I am. Because they've got to rethink what they believe. He's attacking their belief system. Why? 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, Who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. God's heart is for everybody. If you want to know who God wants to be saved, every single solitary person who has ever been born on this planet, he loves them. He created them for a relationship with him. But what happens is God gave us what's called free will. And we get to choose because without free will, love cannot exist. I cannot tell you to love me. And you say, well, I love you. I can command, I can tell my children, tell me you love me. Say it. Say you love me. Love you, Daddy. Is that fulfilling? Do you go, oh, so sweet. No. But if you've got your back turned and you're doing something, all of a sudden you feel little arms around your leg and you're like, what? What are you doing? Love you, Daddy. Ooh. Then you're like, blah, 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 right? Turn into a puddle. Because of their own free will, that's how love works. So God gives us free will so that we can choose to follow him. Choose to follow him. Enforcing them into crisis, the Lord is causing them to reevaluate what they believe, right? There may be some of us today that the reason we're Christians is because crisis came into our life. And we realized that through that crisis, we had a need. There may be some of us that know people. That's, that's their story, man. If it weren't for crisis, they would not know the Lord because God had to break them down. We may know people right now, somebody that you love, somebody that you care about, and they might be in the midst of a crisis. Instead of just going, God, stop the crisis, stop the crisis, stop the crisis. What if you embrace the crisis and recognize the fact that God allows them for a purpose to make differences in our life, to change our perspective? So many of us want to change, take things, bad things out of our lives. But bottom line is many times the bad things are what laws allow us to draw closer to the Lord. Man, the valleys of life is where the richest soil is. And nobody wants to be in the valleys. Everybody wants the mountaintop. But you will not grill your faith on a mountaintop. So these tough times are an important part of who we are as Christians. And I'm telling you, having done this for now, going on 18 years, I've seen a lot of people go through some crisis. And what's really beautiful about it is if people embrace the crisis and recognize and not look at why, 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 but God, what is you teaching me? What are you trying to work in my life? And they'll embrace it. God can do incredible things. So it's a really, really wonderful thing. Instead of always looking at it and going, man, I can't wait to get out of this. How about what am I going to get out of it? Right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation of us also make a way of escape. I want you to notice the word with. It says, but will with the temptation. It doesn't say that he's going to remove the temptation. He'll say, with the temptation, I'm going to let it continue to rest upon you. He will make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. That way of escape is him. He is the way of escape, right? Cast your cares upon me, for I careth for you. God says, look, I'm right here like this. You've got this big burden, this big thing you're carrying, this big thing that's weighing you down. 
and you feel like, I'm getting crushed, I'm getting crushed, I'm getting crushed. Many people use the first part of that verse, and it says, you know what? There hath no temptation taken, uh, uh, taken you, but such as is common to man, but is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. And they stop right there. That is such a waste. Because you know what, what it's saying? is like God's never going to put more than you can handle. What, the whole point is he puts you way more than you can handle. You don't learn how to swim when the water's not above your head. You know, if you're walking through life and water's like this, you can just kind of walk through it. You may be a little uncomfortable, but you can walk through it. But when you start getting here, you've got to start thinking, oh, boy, I better start learning to do a little bit of paddling. And then it starts getting here. You're like, ho, 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 ho. You better swim, right? Swimming's trusting the Lord. God puts a weight on us that we say, look, you know what? I can't do this on my own. I need you. There's always someone who's hard-headed, though. There's always people that don't want to listen. There's always those that are going to be standing against God. Verse number seven, it says, And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs from the land of Egypt. Again, we see that they're only able to mimic, right? They couldn't take away the blood. They can only make more blood. They cannot take away frogs. All they can do is add more frogs. The powers that they have come from a dark place, and they're not sent to help humanity. They're sent to bring misery. Right? So all they can do is what they can do. And as they do this, what they do is they simply put, Pharaoh gets more and more desperate because he's going, man, I got no chance out of this thing. He starts becoming really overwhelmed with this situation, right? So the blessed frogs are now tormenting them. And now he sees no relief because you got to realize at this point in time, they would be dealing with the frogs in this moment. I'm talking frogs in your armpit, right? I mean, you're just like, ah, they're everywhere, everywhere. Then verse number eight. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord, that means to ask or to beg, that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may do sacrifices unto the Lord. I give up, man. God, you win. This is too much. I can't handle it, right? Notice before this, previously, always Moses and Aaron had asked the ones that had been asking to talk to Pharaoh, right? They were always the one making the approach. This time, Pharaoh is the one calling them to come. Notice his reverence, right? His newfound reverence for God. He says here, the Lord, he says, you know, ask him. He says, ask him, ask the Lord. Doesn't say tell him, doesn't command. He says that he may take away the frogs from me. Oh, he says, oh, please, please, please. He's got a reverence for him. He's got this recognition of God's authority and God's power that he never had before. So his crisis has changed the way he sees God. And it's a recognition of him. Next, it is 5-2. Remember, this is just a little, 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 little time in the past. This is what Pharaoh said. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let the Israelites go. <laughs> Full of pride, right? But circumstances have changed that a little bit. And you got frogs all in your business. That'll change the way you think a little bit. Isn't it amazing how much a little tribulation can change our perspective <laughs> on God and our need for him? Verse number nine, and Moses said unto Pharaoh, glory over me. He's basically saying, praise the Lord, man. Moses is so excited, right? He says, when shall I entreat for thee for, uh, and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy house, that they may remain in the river only? Man, this is great news, Pharaoh. You're ready to turn around already. This, I thought it was going to take a long time. This is pretty sweet, man. We only two in. You're ready to go. This is awesome. And he's like, I'm ready now. Notice that mercy, he is so willing right now automatically to forgive and show mercy, right? That's a picture of the heart of God that we see in Moses right here. Immediately, he's not going, you know what? I think you need a few more days, buddy. You need a few more days. 
No, he says, look, immediately, how quickly can I do this? How quickly can we bring mercy? Ready and willing to forgive and bring restoration. Back in Exodus 7, 17, we saw that Moses' function is an extension of God. And here he is literally revealing the heart of God. Now we think about the heart of God towards humanity. Okay, I want you to look at this parable that we have, and it's going to be in Luke 18, 13 and 14. And this parable that Jesus is sharing is talking about one man that thinks he's pious. He thinks he's something special. He's this righteous man, right? And then we have another man who's called, listed as the publican. This man is a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. Look in verse number 13. It says, And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognizes who he is. Verse 14 I tell you, this man, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Justified means just as if he'd never sinned. He goes down clean rather than the other. The pious one, not so. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, shall be humbled. And he that humble himself shall be exalted. This is an important lesson for us to be in mind of. Humility is the key to serving God. It is essential. Pride is the root of all sin. Every one of them. Why did Adam and Eve make the choice that they did? Pride. 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 And guess what? As humanity, we struggle with pride every day. Every day. God wants to bring restoration, but this takes a humble heart. Humility is tough because pride is part of our nature. Case in point, look at verse number 10. And he said... This is Pharaoh. Tomorrow. When shall I do this? Tomorrow. And he said, Moses, this is Moses said. And Moses said, he, says, but he said, be it according to thy word that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. So Pharaoh's pride does not allow him to accept it right now in the moment. He says, tomorrow, tomorrow. Pride and rebellion go hand in hand. Proverbs 16.8 says, says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before the fall. A haughty spirit is someone who builds themselves up, someone exalts themselves, right? So pride, pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So rebellion and pride lead to destruction. Humility leads to God. It is a rebellious spirit that derailed humanity in the Garden of Eden. It's this rebellious spirit that keeps people in bondage to sin every single day. Unwilling to let go. I'm going to do it my way, on my terms, when I'm good and ready. Ever heard these things? Ever said these things? Yeah. Yet the entire time, God's knocking on our heart's door. Saying, look, will you just, will you just let me? Will you just let me help you? Will you just open the door? Will you just let me work in your life for salvation, for, for repentance, whatever it is? You have a sin in your life you're struggling with? And we'll hold on to these things, man. When I say it's good, when I'm ready, I'm holding on to this thing. It's mine. And God says, when you finally let it go, you're going to really live this life. As long as you hold on to this, you're clinging to death, and you cannot serve me and save the world and serve the world at the same time. And some of us in our Christian lives go, why is it not fruitful? Why am I not living that abundant life? But if we really evaluate ourselves and we look here, we can find things that are keeping us away from serving God.
Self-examination is key. Pride and rebellion. Pride and rebellion. Now, they are fueled by pride, no doubt about it. Now, try sleeping with the frogs. Think about going to bed, right? Think about Pharaoh. Now, the people have no idea what's going on. All they know is, about a week ago, the river turned into blood, and it stayed blood for about a week. Now they're covered with frogs. Frogs are all over everything they've got. They're length, so the place would be in absolute misery. Pharaoh knows this. People that he cares about. It says his servants and those in his household, and in fact, himself. So Pharaoh himself is trying to sleep. Can you imagine you fall asleep with your mouth open? Oh, can you imagine? Has anyone ever had, I'm not going to ask that question. I don't want to know. Imagine you fall asleep and you wake up and a frog just camping out in your mouth there. Oh, but that's what he chose. He says, no, tomorrow, tomorrow. As observers, we watch people suffer with pride and rebellion. We watch people that we know if they would just relent, God could do amazing work in their life. The problem is you can't do it for them. No matter how badly you may want to, you can beg and you can plead and you can cry. And I've been in many of those times with people that I love that I begged. And I was like, God, please, please, please. But see, God gives us a free will. And it comes down to that individual's got to choose. And it takes humility. And the problem is pride is what we're fighting. And you know, people that are prideful, guess what they cannot see? That they're prideful. Because in order to see you're prideful, you have to be humble. Isn't that crazy? So the very thing that they're fighting against is the thing that's hiding the truth from them. And some of us are caught up in pride. We're so worried about us. If we could just worry about our, our, our persona, if our persona wasn't about representing me, if I wasn't about showing David Goodson, David Goodson, David Goodson, but what if I wanted to show Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? What if all I wanted people to see was him? You're a reflection of this world, man, or you're a reflection of Christ. We're, we're doing our Bible study on Wednesday nights, and one of the things we're talking about is it was talking about, about silver and how silver, when it has impurities in it, guess what? It doesn't reflect light as well. But as you refine the impurities out, and it becomes cleaner and clearer and clearer. It becomes more and more reflective. So if you are a re representation, if you are a reflection of Jesus, and when people look at you, they don't see him, if you're born again, he's there. The problem is there's so many impurities in our metal. There's so many impurities in us that our reflection is either distorted where it doesn't look like Jesus, or we can't see him at all. And our, the refining pot that takes out the impurities is the Word of God. If you're not in the Word of God, you can't be refined. If you're not growing in the Lord, you can't be refined. If you're not humble, you cannot be refined. Because one of the biggest, dirtiest, nastiest impurities in us is pride. And it fuels all these others. But a humble heart. He says those that will humble themselves, He will exalt. He will shine brightly out of them. We struggle, every one of us struggles with this fight. No doubt about it. But bottom line is the coolest thing is when we pray and we cry for people, when the time comes and they're ready and they will humble themselves, guess how long it takes for God to be ready? Immediately. When Peter sank in the water and he said, Lord, save me. 
The Bible says immediately is the word God uses. Immediately. He snatches him out of the water. No matter how far we run from God, no matter how dirty we may be and how many impurities we have, if we'll humble our hearts before him, immediately he will be there with loving arms, not telling us what we've done wrong and beating us down, but saying, I love you. I loved you in the midst of your troubles. I loved you at your darkest point. I love you. I love you. I love you. And now that you've come through me and you took me in humility, I will receive you as my son, as my daughter. Man, God's awesome. I don't know about y'all. That gets me fired up, dude. Whew. All right. Uh, verse 11. And the frog shall depart from thee. This is Moses telling him. This is what's going to happen. He says, look, you want this to happen? Tomorrow, okay. The frog shall depart from thee and from thy house and from thy servants and from thy people. They shall remain in the river only. God is always faithful. I want you to notice, always faithful to do what he says he's going to do. Again, we see God's power over the Egyptian, God's Hoppy and Hecate. And Moses and Aaron went out, uh, went out from, uh, from Pharaoh and Moses cried out, cried unto the Lord and because of the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. Moses triumphantly goes out there, excited man. He thinks, man, this is it, right? He goes out and he, he calls out. He says, hey man, this wasn't that bad. Lord, do this thing. Verse number 13, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. I want you to notice the fact that Moses says, depart, that they might depart. They don't depart. They become a part of where they are because they die right where they're at. Stacks and stacks and stacks of them. God kills them. Why does he kill them? Maybe to show the Egyptians that the protection, the fact that they were forbidden, does not apply to him. Perhaps to show them the sovereignty and the power of God over life and death. He can make a decision and they all die instantaneously. Maybe it's to force the Egyptians to look at the symbol of fertility, something that many of them have in their pockets or around their neck. And now looking at these dead frogs everywhere and realizing this picture of the symbol of life is in reality a symbol of death. God is revealing, revealing the futility of false religion while at the same time he's displaying his ultimate authority. What they've chosen to believe up to this point has led to death. Verse 14, and they gathered them together upon heaps and the land stank. Mm. So the putrid smell of death would rest upon all of Egypt. The people are walking amongst it. They're digging around the house. You ever have like a mouse die in your, somewhere in your house? And you're like, what is that smell? I mean, it happened in our garage. And I mean, I had to dig the whole garage apart looking. And you finally find, you're like, oh man, back in this little corner. But the whole house stunk the smell of death. Imagine millions and millions and millions of frogs in every nook and cranny of your house. All the little corners. And you're like, I think we got them all, sweetheart. No, 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 we don't have them all. There's something going on here, man. Hold on, get us. Check in the pantry, sweetheart. Oh, behind the bread. <laughs> Another frog. Right? So as they're carrying out this stink, these big piles of death, they're stacking them up. They're trying to get rid of this, this death. This is going to cause them to rethink everything, right? God's attacking their belief system. He says that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. So we now, through this, we would see fear and confusion rampant in this city. Seeds of doubt had to be rocking the beliefs of the Egyptians in their gods, while at the same time strengthening the faith of the Israelites as they're saying, man, look what God is doing. Look what Jehovah is doing. So yet again, the river, the great river, the bringer of life, has delivered death. Verse six, Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ 
our Lord. The wages, what we earn because of sin is death. Remember, Egypt is a picture of the world. It leads to death. When the things of the world that we thought would fulfill us fail, we have a choice to either turn to God or look deeper into the world. The choice people make will be determined based upon their level of pride. Remember, crisis can humble us. Or some people get more prideful. You ever know somebody like that when things get tough? They get more angry, more belligerent, more frustrated, and they hold on even tighter than they did before. And God will allow this stuff to come upon them because he's trying to break through to find that humble heart. Now check this out. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite when the frogs were dead, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Unlike man or unlike God, man doesn't many times keep his word. He said this is what was going to happen, and he does not follow through. Pharaoh's faith is what's called circumstantial, based upon his level of hardship. When they're going his way, things are going his way, man. Life's good. Things are going his way. Whoa. Hey, now, I need some help. Does this describe some of us in our faith? When things are going good, we really don't have a whole lot of need for God. Life's just cruising along, got a good job, bills are paid, plenty of food, life's happy, good relationship. Man, I'm, I'm, I mean, God's already blessing my prayers. Why do I need to pray? I mean, he must know that things are rocking, man. This is just awesome. And what happens is that complacency is where Satan tries to open a little door, right? A little thing. Because you're going, man, things are going so good. I'm blessed. I'm reverenced. God loves me. And Satan's like, oh, perfect. Your dependence upon God's getting weaker and weaker. And the weaker you are in your faith, the more vulnerable you are to my attack. And I'm going to bide my time. And the armor of God, right? The armor of God's only effective if it's put on properly. It's only effective if it's put on tightly. When that belt, when the, the, when the Roman centurion would wear that armor, that whole thing was built onto a belt that had a bunch of different layers and it had straps on it. And when he pulled the straps, all the armor would tighten itself and get it, make, it, make it effective. So the belt of truth, the truth, the foundation of the armor, if it was not tight and if it wasn't put on properly, it left openings and gaps. And it says that you might withstand the fiery darts of the wicked one. Meaning he doesn't come up with a sword, he shoots and it's the ones that slip in those little corners. Man. We start allowing sin ever so slightly in our lives. When someone falls away from their faith and ends up very, very backslidden, it didn't happen in one day. They weren't one day like, man, praise God, and the next day, like, let's go to a bar. It doesn't work like that. It was a little slip, little slip, little slip, little slip, little slip, little slip. And I think one of the greatest analogies I ever heard Brian gave it. We were in our, in, our men's, in our men's meeting. And he said, you know what? It's like he said, it's like when you, go into the, when you go in the ocean and you set your towel on the beach and you get in the water and you're swimming around. Whee! Hey! Where's my, where's my towel? Whoa, man. You drifted all the way down and you didn't notice at all. As far as you knew, it was right here. But in reality, it was way back here. Subtle. Subtle. That's how Satan works, man. He wants to draw you down and destroy you. And you know what causes that? Pride. Pride. Circumstantial faith. Pharaoh wants to get, he wants, basically in this situation, it's kind of like this. He wants kind of a get out of hell free card, right? That's people that come to God and say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for salvation because, you know what? I'm in a really bad way. And they, they, it's, 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 a, it's a need or it's a want. 
but it's not based upon humility. A humble heart receives God. A prideful heart, no matter how much need it may be in, and how much circumstances may be piled upon them, they're looking for a way out. Pharaoh is he's what you call a foul-weather faith, right? When things are rough, he needs God. When things aren't rough, he don't need God. He's just looking for a way out of his problem. And there's people that have called on God that say, you know what, I'm going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to get saved because, you know what, my life is in such a rough place. But then there's no change in them. And they go right back to who they were. That was the exact same thing with Pharaoh. He said, you know what, I will let them go. And as soon as things get better, I'm not letting anybody go. I'm going to stay exactly the way I was before. And if you got saved at some point in your life, or you say you got saved, and you went right back to the same life you were, there's a good chance you have what's called foul-weather faith. But God's looking for a humble heart. A humble heart says, you know what? I'm the problem. The reason I'm in the mess that I'm in is because of me. Not because of my circumstances. There's nobody to blame. It's not God's fault. It's not the world's fault. It's my fault. I stand where I stand before the Lord one day. And either I will stand here accountable or I'll stand here going, Lord, it, was, it wasn't me. You ever know people that are everything is, they're always a victim? Nothing's their fault. Nothing's their fault. That's pride. Because they don't want to admit that they're the issue. And when it takes to salvation, salvation is a matter of pride and humility. And God's saying, look, if you'll humble yourself before me, I will exalt you. Saving faith. Saving faith. The kind of faith that changes a life and alters someone's eternity comes from a place of humility, not need or want. James 4.10 says this, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. A humble heart. That's all God's trying to get to. These plagues are to get a humble heart. The issues that come in our lives, a humble heart. He's trying to break through the walls of pride and all the stuff and our self-importance that we create. And our world feeds it. Right? We go on Facebook and we put a post. And immediately, how many, did, how many people saw it? How many people liked it? Why do I care? Pride. I'm guilty of that. I do stuff, I, I, put, I put the thing out yesterday for the church. Man, I can't wait for the message tomorrow. What did I do last night before I went to sleep? Okay. <laughs> admittedly, I want people to come to church, no doubt about it. But part of that's driven by pride. I should not care what people think. I should care what God thinks. And we live our lives so worried about what everybody else believes about us and how we appear to the world, yet in our quiet time and in our private time, we do not care how we stand before God. We'll do things that we would never do in public. We'll say things that we would never say in public. We'll do things that we would never, ever dream of, yet we'll do them in our quiet time, not worrying about the fact that God sees it all. But if our heart was right and we were humble before God, you'd be the same person in private, as you are in public, and you'd be true, and you'd have character. Character is somebody who's totally sold out to God. And they say, you know what? It's all, he's the only one that matters. And if the world doesn't like you, who cares? We don't need their approval. It doesn't matter what people think of us. It matters what God thinks of us. Because one day when we sound accountable to him, on the day of judgment, when I stand before him on that great white throne, guess what? I've got to be accountable to God, and it's the only one that matters. When we stand there and at that day, he's going to ask me, how'd you do? Let's take a look at your life, David. Let's look at the replay of how you did. He's the only one that matters. And the world wants us to believe it's all about them. And it's not. And it's not about us. 
It's about God. And there will be crises that God will bring in your life, and you can embrace them, recognize them, and allow them to change you because God wants to see the humility of a broken heart. Will we be like Pharaoh, rebelliously choosing to suffer in our pride? Or will we humble ourselves before God? God's given us free will, and the choice is ours. And when it comes down to it, it's either frogs or freedom. He had a choice to make. We can continue to live in our sin and in our rebellion and suffer the results of it, or we can give ourselves to God in a humble heart, broken before Him, and watch Him deliver us and give us a life that is truly abundant and full of love and be used of Him like we never dreamed possible. Let's pray.